Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. So this morning we're primarily, we're, we're getting back into our, our series in the book of uh, Luke, Gospel of Luke, see Cora. Y'all seen the, we were talking about today, the music uh, we were praying prior to. Y'all seen the, the Pentecostals, right? They run around waving their jacket, right? Uh, Cora was just doing that, so. Um, hey, this, look, we're primarily going to discuss, walk through the parable of the sower, very famous parable of Jesus. Um, but before we read our passage, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke also used this moment in his gospel to, to note a reality that's really easy to forget. We can kind of sometimes skip over this part. You know, it's common, at least when, when I read the Bible, it's common to think of Jesus walking around Galilee with 12 guys, and they're just kind of walking around, and he's teaching a lot of things, and they're learning. And, of course, the, the 12 apostles, they had uh, you know, a unique calling. Uh, it was They were the ones who were tasked with continuing Jesus' ministry after his ascension. But... They weren't the only ones who followed Jesus, right? Uh, outside of the 12 apostles, Jesus also had an, an entire inner circle of disciples, uh, students, in which, contrary to the cultural norms of Jesus' day, some were, were women. And so since Luke thought it important to note that, I think we should at least spend you know, a couple minutes noting that as well. So verse 2 of our passage says, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Okay, two quick takeaways here. First, uh, the, the point that Christianity is this kind of male chauvinistic, he-man, woman-hater club is really just simply not true. Um, if anything, if that has come out in various places in the church, that's because of heretical subcultures within the history of the church that has produced that. Because if we go back here to the source, back to Jesus, we see that that's not even close to reality. If anything, we see the opposite, right? We see that Jesus held women in very high regard, uh, that he honored them far more than the other religious leaders of the day, because as is the case here, as we see, not only did he heal them, uh, but his, his healing was just the beginning of his relationship with them. He also invited them to come and follow him and, and learn from him. So not only did they, he forgive their sins, but Jesus also sought to disciple their minds uh, to teach them his, his way. And they responded to his work and to his word in their lives by becoming some of his most devoted followers. Uh, one scholar noted, it's telling that no woman is mentioned as speaking against Jesus in his life or having a share in his death. On the contrary, Jesus was anointed by a woman for his burial. Women were the last at his grave and the first to his tomb on resurrection morning. And it was to a woman he first appeared after having been raised. If anything, the Bible honors women. Jesus honored them. Um, so that's the, the first thing. Second takeaway here 
is in response to Jesus' work in their lives, these women supported Jesus' ministry with their resources. You know, Jesus, he did, at one point he was a carpenter, but at some point when he began his public ministry, he didn't have a job. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He, he depended on uh, the benevolence of others uh, to continue walking around, which is, uh, isn't it interesting because Jesus could, I mean, he could multiply bread and fish. You know, he could provide for himself. And yet he allowed these women to support him with their own resources. And you know, some of these ladies may have been wealthy, um, some less so. But regardless, they gave as they could, which highlights a huge reality that's so easy to forget. Phil Riken said this. He said, with these women, we see that there's more than one way to show love to Jesus Christ. And I guess I'm guilty of this because I think, well, the way that I show love to Jesus is the way everybody's supposed to show love to Jesus. There's more than one way to serve Jesus. And so we see in the Bible that some women were called to anoint Jesus' feet. Um, And there's a place for that type of love in church, right? There's a place for uh, adoring Jesus with with, uh, the perfume of extravagant worship. That there is a a place and a time to be like Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet soaking it in. But there's also a place and time for serving Jesus in practical ways. Um, So little aside on tithing, giving from a heart of gratitude is just just as much a response to the gospel and is just as much an act of love as pouring perfume out on Jesus. Now, Now, I know our role says, look, it's your money. You earned it. You do what you want with it. And Maybe the, to the world, that's, well, that's their prerogative, right? But, but the problem is with that is when you meet Jesus, or more when Jesus saves you out of this dark world, you start seeing that there's something greater than you. And, and there's something longer lasting than our wants. Um, you know, like we've got to realize that we are still reaping the benefits today of the legacy of the support these women gave Jesus 2,000 years ago. And so stewarding God's gifts means giving towards something that is bigger than you and giving towards the ministry of the gospel of Jesus, which will continue to reach people for generations and generations to come. And so, yes, we do need to go and you know, serve, but giving is also a way to do missions. You know, somebody has to support the missions. Uh, so giving can be service. Okay? So with all that said... Uh, Let's dive into God's Word, and we're going to hear Jesus' very sobering parable. This is God's Word, Luke 8. Soon afterward, he went out through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, Jesus, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some of that seed fell among the path and was trampled underfoot, the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock and As it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. 
And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As Jesus said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, Jesus said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word so that they might, may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. This is God's word. I've, I've mentioned this before, but in 2007, the Washington Post, if you remember, ran this little social experiment. Uh, They took the master violinist Joshua Bell, uh, a musician who, uh, he sells out concert halls around the world, and and, and the Washington Post asked, okay, what if we took this master musician out of his setting, out of the concert hall, and placed him busking in a subway, would people still be able to recognize his beautiful music? Can they still recognize his talent? So Joshua Bell put on a hat, disguised himself, and armed with his $16 million Stradivarius violin, began playing in the subway. And, you know, he had just sold out the Boston Symphony Hall like three, three days before. And people had paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars just to go, you know, be near him, to see him play, hear him play. And yet on this day, the, the Post reports of the 1,097 people who walked past him in the span of 45 minutes, only 27 stopped and listened. His violin itself was worth millions. And yet all he collected in his busking jar was $32.17. You know, I mean, the people in the subway, for the most part, had no idea what they were walking past. That they were walking past one of, I mean, possibly the greatest musician in the world because they didn't have ears to hear. Okay. Many of us know this. Jesus, he, he, Jesus often taught through stories called parables. And our, our passage here marks the first, at least in the way Luke is organized in the material, this is the first major parable in Luke. And you could argue that this parable is the granddaddy of all parables because this is the parable that Jesus used to explain why he used parables in the first place. Which is important because there's a, a massive misunderstanding when it comes to parables and stories. For instance, there's this, you know, some may call it a suggestion, could call it a complaint, uh, that's often made to preachers that goes something like this. Preacher, I've been thinking, which I was like, that's your first point, your first problem. Right? Um, preacher, I, I've been thinking, um, Jesus used parables, you know, Jesus taught in stories, why don't, why don't you use more stories in your sermons, right? And of course, I think we know that it's a well-established fact that I think humans likely learn better through story than just sheer bullet points. 
But Jesus didn't use parables to make it easier for everyone to understand him. Now, now parables are are real-life stories with much deeper points in them that Jesus actually used to to divide his, his audience. You know, he used parables to reveal the difference between people who were just there to be entertained, just there to hear a good story, and those who were there by faith to, to learn spiritual truth. And so that's why Jesus quoted from Isaiah. He says, seeing, that, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So for those who have spiritual ears to hear, the parables, I mean, wow, like the, the prodigal son, right? The, the lost sheep, I mean, all these parables... In, cause the beautiful life-giving message of the kingdom of God and God's love for his people to explode in our souls, right? When, when heard by, with the ears of faith. While those who don't believe, who don't have the ears to hear, they just don't get it. It's just a good story about in literature, right? It's just, today it's like, it's, like, it's a story about gardening principles, okay? It's what Paul meant when he said the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, It's just some burned-out bum busking in the subway. Who's this guy? But for those of us who have been saved by faith, for those of us who who by faith know the sound of God's stradivarius of grace, the gospel is the power of God. And then, one other thing before we walk through this. We we mentioned this Wednesday night in our study in Genesis. But as believers, this is a, there's two fundamental truths that we, we hold at the exact same time. And it seems like they're opposite each other. And it's almost illogical. Who, the secret things belong to God. And it's, it's hard to understand this. But they're called twin truths. One is that it's, it's appropriate and good to make much of God's sovereignty. That throughout Scripture, we find that God rules and reigns over all things for His glory and the good of His people. God is totally sovereign. And then, on the other hand of that, second, at the same time, we're not fatalistic in that we, we, well, I guess we just let go and I guess let God, you know. Um, But the Bible teaches that we are culpable, that that we are responsible for our sin. And I know it's, how does that work? Maybe we'll figure that out in glory one day. But they both are true. And so as believers, we're called to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. We are called to kill sin. We are called to pursue holiness by the power of the Spirit, which, which means it's appropriate to ask as we go through this parable, all right, which of these soils describe us? Um, what is Jesus saying to us? Because every one of us in this room fit into this parable somewhere. We're all here. So in light of Jesus' work for you on the cross, which type of soil, which type of heart are you? First, are you hard-hearted? You know, this is the person, the, the spouse, the child, who's heard the gospel over and over again. And yet, no response. Actually, if anything, if there's been a response, it's been a negative response. It's been one of unbelief, just resistance. And we may think that they're just stubborn, set in their ways, but Jesus reminds us that though that's possible, Jesus reminds us that there's also something else going on here that's more serious that we just don't see. We're reminded again and again through Scripture that our real enemy isn't flesh or blood. That it's not our spouse, it's not that mean kid at school, but it's Satan. 
And, and as Rankin Wilburn said, he said, we may not think much about Satan, but rest assured, he thinks about you a lot. So Jesus says that in various ways, Satan comes and he steals and he snatches away what is truly good and beautiful. Now, he's fine with leaving us with what is lesser true and lesser beautiful. And it renders our hearts hard. And sure, it's always possible that you fall asleep during sermons because eh, maybe the sermon's just boring. It's possible that that's true. Um, it could be that maybe you're just, you have too many skeptical intellectual doubts to take the Bible seriously. That's certainly a possibility. Or it could be that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, we are on the front lines and the enemy is at war. Um, so pray. You know, really prepare your hearts going into Sunday morning. You know, pray to receive the word. Um, this, is, this is ground zero right here. And what's also interesting, at least to me, is, is often, I don't know about y'all, but often when I think of hard-hearted people growing up, this is probably just a stereotype, I, usually I, I think of, well, they're obviously pagans. You know, these, these are the people that you'd find at like the death metal concerts, right? Oh, they're just wicked. But the irony is, in the New Testament, the hardest-hearted people were the religious people, the, the, the buttoned-up people. And they, they ain't about to go to a death metal concert. No, they're, like, they're doing one of those like Christian cruises you, know, that you hear on the radio. They're going to hear the Gaithers on the cruise of the Bahamas, right? Um, the very ones you think would embrace Jesus, the religious types, <laughs> were the very ones who rejected him. But think of who did receive Jesus. You know, think of the people we see throughout scriptures that have soft hearts. Prostitutes, tax collectors, fishermen, a demon-possessed man who was a cutter who lived in a graveyard. Um, there was a woman, remember we find, there was a woman who had five husbands, and the man she was currently living with was not her husband. Um, what about the centurion that Josh preached on? few weeks ago, right? The centurion had likely overseen unspeakable acts of violence. You know, to, it was to people who, they, they wouldn't darken the door of a Gaither cruise. They ain't going there. To those people, the seed of the word went deep. And they were never the same again. It's time and time again, we find that it's the broken who received Jesus, which explains why David would write, God loves the broken and contrite in heart. You know, hard-hearted people are, are obviously not broken people. They're proud people. And now they may be aware of their sin to some degree or aware of their need, but in their pride they seek to control the, the, the narrative and they seek to control it in all the wrong ways, which leaves them callous, 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 callous. And, and look, lest we roll our eyes, which is easy to do, like, Psh, these people... We've got to know, and this is the gospel too, that if not for God's grace in our lives, this is us. Because we don't like come out of the womb just like soft hearts, I just can't wait to be with God. We come out God-haters. And God-haters we will continue to be until God makes our hearts soft. So if there's any softness in you, that is the work of the Spirit. You know, the cartoon Frozen, love Frozen, right? Frozen told us, a little bit about this. In Frozen, we're told that there's really only one way to thaw a frozen heart. Only an act of sacrificial love can melt and soften that thing. And that's why the cross is, really is a blowtorch to
who has been just experienced the love of God, like it's, it's incompatible with hardness. You can't be hard. I mean, often when trials come, we hear this a lot. We, we ask things like, like, why is God doing this to me? Like, why, God? And, and the answer is because God is a really good farmer. He's a really good farmer who knows that without him plowing our stony hearts, there ain't nothing going to grow. And, and you, but I am telling you from experience, the best gift God can give us is breaking us into a million pieces and undoing us so that his love can pour in and grow. So the question is, are you hard-hearted? Uh, when we talk about the gospel, does it just bounce off? Like, are you basically asleep right now? If you are, you are in danger. Um, and Jesus is calling you to repent of doing life on your own and to come to him. Jesus continues, um, second, we ask, do you have a shallow heart? Shallow heart. You know, the word's gone out and you've tasted some of the goodness, like you've experienced something that's good uh, about the gospel or maybe Christian community. And you may have even had an emotional response. You may have joined a church, and, and yet you were never converted. The coin never fully dropped. We, we learned that a disciple is a call to follow for the rest of your life, right? Not just walk the aisle, we're in, let's go. George Whitfield, great preacher, was once asked after a preaching tour, how many people did he think became saved while he was out preaching? And, and George Whitfield rightly said, I don't know. We'll see in a few years. Okay, this is why not spirit-wrought revival, um, but the production of revivalism is pretty dangerous. And we've, we've noted this, but in, in the late 1800s, one man, Charles Finney, right, uh, which ironically is a, a Presbyterian. He's the one who birthed all this, you know, these alternative methods of church, right? Um, Charles Finney single-handedly changed the, the church landscape of America, and, and unfortunately much of what we see today stems from him. Um, he was a man who t made a scientific study of human emotions. What, it, what makes people tick? How can we make people respond? And he learned these things so that he could manipulate it. And so he took this knowledge of the human emotion, human emotions, and he literally invented a new way of church so that he could bend and manipulate so that they would respond. Maybe he had good intentions, I don't know. And so he would work people up, he would give them an emotional experience in, in church, and the measured success of his revivals were the sheer number of converts. And, and churches far and wide were like, this is it. They started using what was called, quote, new methods of church. This is the new way. Gone are the old, the ordinary means of grace, which, by the way, that's how the church had grown for thousands of years, or 1,900 years. Um, gone was that. Now church is all of a sudden in the business of entertainment. All the while, Finney himself, in his autobiography, he confessed, he said that, that what he did was purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. In other words, he's like, it's just a math formula, you know. You get this, and you get this, and it's going to equal this emotional experience. So ever since Finney, some branches of American Christianity have been marked by and every head bowed, every eye closed, emotional moment, a pas the passionate choice. Okay, 
Well, contrast that, let's get, getting everybody riled up, contrast that with just the steady rhythmic pattern of a sower. Just sow and seed. And, and please don't hear me. You know, I, I'm definitely not bashing altar calls. I think they can be used for good. I'm not bashing mood music. I'm sure there's a place where all these things can be used um, well. But just know that the way of growth really has never been that way. It has always been the ordinary means of grace, which just means showing up to worship and sitting under the Word week in and week out, week after week after week. It's, it's seeking the Lord in prayer consistently. It's enjoying Christian fellowship, you know, week in, week out. And we, we say this a lot, mountaintop experiences are great, awesome. We love those mountaintop experiences as believers. Wonderful views, but it's tough for fruit to grow on the mountaintop, right? Because the air is too thin, the ground's not that deep. you got to go low where the soil is deep for growth. Okay, third. And I think this is most sobering for our culture. Jesus asks, do you have a compromised heart this morning? And apparently the Jesus way is not like our culture's way or what so much of American Christianity looks like, according to Jesus right here, Jesus is saying that is not what Christianity is. It's not a reflection of those who follow me. So verse 7, And some of fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. And Jesus said, This is the one who hears the word. Now you're showing up, you hear the word, but the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world choke it out. And... The fruit never matures. So Jesus, Jesus knows that we're prone to worry, and that's why he, he spent so much time talking about, hey, I want you all to look at the birds and look at the flowers. You need to notice these things that, if, I mean, if God cares for them, you, you, surely you can know that God really cares for you. Um, he, he said things like, fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And Jesus constantly reminds us of this because it's really easy. It's easy for me to get wrapped up in the cares of this life, worrying about our health, right? worrying about our kids, worrying about our work situation, worrying about the stock market, gas prices, the weather, crop input prices. And we, we, get, we can worry about these things so much that we forget to care for our, our own souls. But Jesus didn't stop there. He also tells us that good things can wreck our souls. You know, planning a vacation. So fun to plan a vacation, right? Um, planning a vacation, buying a car, remodeling our homes, playing youth sports, following our rebels, our bulldogs, or whoever, are wonderful things that can so easily become the only thing we think about, the only thing we talk about which renders us really no different from the secular world. And so truly I ask you this morning, like, what does it profit us? What does it profit you? If you gain the whole world, what does it profit you? If you gain the whole world, if you keep up with all the Joneses, like everybody in town, you do everything that they do. You keep up with all the Joneses, you do all the things that all of your lost friends and neighbors are doing. Like, what does it profit us to do all that and, and yet forfeit our soul? And we say this so much, but I still don't think people get it. 
It's like there truly is a punk rock spirit to Christians that says, I'm not going to do what everyone else does. I don't care what you're doing. I've got something better. You know, we are finite with finite time. So what's a soul worth? I mean, could you put a number on a soul? What's the soul, what's the soul of your kids worth? Um, could it be worth pulling a few thorns? Uh, could it be worth saying no to some really good things that they're great, but your soul would probably be better off without it? You know, J.C. Ryle said, Thousands of things which in themselves are innocent, when followed to excess, become little better than soul poisons and helps to hell. Um, well, look, that's what J.C. Ryle said. This is what Jesus says. And now I know that we're about to go out into the world where you've got lots of friends that say other things. And so you do have to make, there's a decision that has to be made. All right, am I going to follow Jesus? Or am I going to follow everybody else? Punk rock spirit, you've got to remember. Ray Cortez says, there are some things you just can't mix. You just can't. Anything you mix with Jesus will be your God. Uh, he says, we can only have one Lord in our lives, and no man, no woman, no child can serve two masters. Which brings us to our final heart, uh, the fruitful heart. Are you fruitful? You know, Jesus is super clear here. He says, if you aren't bearing fruit, if the fruit of the Spirit is not in some degree in your life, then you don't have Jesus. Um, because the, that seed's pretty potent once it gets in there. <laughs> if you look through this, this is the opposite of a seeker-sensitive sermon. Jesus basically shows them and says, look, look, 75% of y'all, y'all ain't getting it. Um, and if you're a farmer, if you say you're a farmer and only 25% of your land actually produces a crop, that's not too good, right? <laughs> uh, not a real good farm. Uh, but isn't that what Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember, he said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Oh, man, all kinds of people walk that way. But the way of, to life is narrow, and few find it. But despite the small crop, this is why the grace is so amazing. Despite the small crop, this is an awesome promise that though it may be little, the Spirit causes it to grow in an abundance, abundant harvest. As Paul said, Christ is able to do immeasurably more than you, you ask or you think. More than you can imagine according to His power that is at work in us. So fruit will grow. Um, how do we know that this is possible? We love that verse in John where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, just by itself. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Well, Jesus is saying not only is his word the seed, but he is the seed. And so the only, the only way our hearts can be soft or rooted or untangled or fruitful is because this died. Jesus died. And then we're, we're called to follow his lead in dying to self and living to Christ. So being soft-hearted is a byproduct of seeing that though we deserve death, Christ died. Uh, it's seeing that though we are the biggest sinner we know, we have an even greater Savior 
That where our sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. It's a plow. It's a plow and roundup at the same time. And so it's the good news. So has God plowed your soul? Um, have, do you have roots that run deep into the bedrock of Christ? Do you know that He is all you have? And He's all you need. Westminster, this is an invitation to come and know that. Well, let me pray for us. Father, uh, may you give us a humble heart. Uh, may you give us a soft heart, uh, a deep heart, a non-compromised heart. Um, Lord, may you give us a fruitful heart. Um, so, Father, we ask that you, through the Spirit, would come and convict us in various ways. Like, what is the man's responsibility to hearing this sermon uh, in light of your sovereignty? Uh, so, Lord, give us ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.